Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. Andrew, this week you talked to the Icelandic writer, Andri Snare Magnuson. Uh, he has a new book out. It's called The Casket of Time. What did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about time and we talked about water and we talked about finding new language for climate change. Um, I first met Andri in Copenhagen last fall. Uh, we have some common friends. And immediately when I met him, I was trying to book him for this podcast. He's mm. just an incredibly inspiring human being who has had this amazing career of both writing children books and poetry books and short stories. And he ran for president of Iceland. I mean, this guy has had a unique, a unique life and uh, fascinating to talk to. Can't wait to hear it. Here's Andre with Andrew. Welcome, Andre. So you've done so many things in a relatively short period of time. Um, the short list is you've written novels, poetries, plays, short stories. You finished third in Iceland's last presidential election. Yeah. Uh, what I was wondering is, what is the kind of common thread? Can you connect the dots between all of these endeavors? I think they're kind of becoming connected. So uh, my literary career has been kind of the career of uh, betraying your audience. That is, I started with poetry, and uh, actually my first book became a bestseller when I was quite young. I was 22 or 3. And uh, people wanted more poetry, but then I did a children's book, which is kind of another thing and and that actually did well as well so um, people wanted another children's book especially my publisher and then I did sci-fi that is not for children <laughs> when people wanted more sci-fi I did uh, I did uh, dreamland which is non-fiction but the common thread is uh, my output is shaped by the society I'm in the, the times that is surrounding me and that kind of presses out the need for some kind of output. Mm -hmm. So every kind of project is done by some kind of an urge. Uh, the poetry, I felt like there was a lack of mythology art in. Uh, it was actually published by Iceland's biggest supermarket chain. And uh, it was kind of a literary prank. The children's book was, was a cause as well. I, I thought uh, children's literature needed... A really important book. And uh, the things that were kind of, not haunting me, but kind of the things that I was thinking, they did not find a path in grown-up literature or poetry. And the beauty of the children's book or the clarity of that genre was the path that I found. So the common thread is, I think, 
everything that I do has to be really important. <laughs> right. And, and the issues of our time, of course, are, and, you know, consumerism, the world's energy crisis, the environmental collapse. And, and also maybe an urge to take on really big issues, almost like uh, like the mega issues. It's almost like a hubris in, in terms of the issues. So bonus poetry, that was just basically consumerism in general, the world as a supermarket, uh, the blue planet. I was trying to create mythology for a world that uh, only found out uh, a few hundred years ago that we're actually living on a planet and that uh, all mythology, all religion was created before that. And uh, I felt we needed an updated version of what it means to live on a planet. Yeah. And uh, and to nail the sun to the sky. Yeah, and what happens if somebody nails a sun to the sky? <laughs> <laughs> you said you're looking for, for language, Yeah, you know, for a language, um, myths, metaphors to understand climate change, which is kind of where your head's been at. Yeah, last and, few years. and actually, I'm kind of language sensitive because sometimes words uh, they become so, in a strange way, like almost like climate change. I've often had lectures about climate change without using the word mm. because I feel like sometimes a word has been used so much it's becoming to wear and tear. People have become immune to the word. Mm. So when I have lectures about climate change. I don't say I'm talking about climate change. I say I'm talking about time and water. Mm. And then people ask me like, oh, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> but if I say I'm going to lecture you about climate change, and then everybody's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just yet another lecture on climate change. So I think we need, that is, to understand an issue, it has to come through many paths through our brain. Mm. And uh, we're not only rational beings. So, you know, we read a science report and it's not like we read the latest IPCC report and say, oh my God, I'm going to change everything. Uh, things have to saturate through different parts of our brain. So we are rational and scientific beings, but we're also spiritual and mystical. We have a future and we have a past. We have a society, family, uh, we are also individuals. So the idea is that to understand a word, to have us react to it, it has to kind of fill all these spheres. But until now, I think global warming has been very much just in the scientific part. And then then they're trying to raise our sensitive emotions with polar bears. <laughs> but, it, but it hasn't really filled up yet. No, but you seem to have found a commonality of love to talk about. Yes, yeah, so I think one of our fundamental problems in terms of uh, these big issues is scale, language, and time. So what we are faced with is that in the next 100 years, all the elements of water on the planet are going through a fundamental shift. Mm. That is, all the glaciers that are not basically Antarctica or Greenland are vanishing. Uh, the sea levels are rising on a quicker rate than we've seen for tens and thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. We 
have the pH, the ocean acidification thing going on, which is uh, the biggest chain, change in the oceans for 50 million years. Mm. So actually, just that term, only that term, should be enough to just take the handbrake and just, okay, where are we going, guys? But strangely, we don't react to it. So because one of the reasons is I think we don't understand, or we don't understand pH because it's a logarithmic scale. We don't understand time. So when a scientist says 2,100, you know, that's 80 years after Blade Runner. You know, it's like we're we're used to that culturally, that that's just some kind of a dystopia. It's not connected to us. It's a cold, distant place. So I've actually been experimenting with what you could call a pancake sci-fi, which is kind of taking away the technology, taking away the dystopia, and just imagining, okay, in 2100, we are going to be humans still, aren't we? Yes. And uh, how does our continuity look like as humans? So I ask a very simple question when I have like lectures for 20-year-olds. Okay, let's look at the future. Let's not think of 3D goggles or all this gimmick stuff. Not even AI. Just look at the future and just imagine when is somebody still alive that you will love? Mm-hmm. And then they kind of, what, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, you're 20 and uh, you expect that you'll become a cool 90-year-old, uh, just like my grandmother. She's the coolest person that I know. She's 94 and in good shape and we can just talk like, you know, real human beings. We have a good relationship. So I I ask them, when is somebody still alive that you will love? You'll become 90. Your favorite 20-year-old in your life will be born 2070. It will be a person you have held as an infant and you've raised or participated in creating this person, this character. And so the person that will be closest to you in 2090 is born 2070. And when is that person still talking about you as their kind of main person in life? You know, their greatest influence, just like I'm talking about my grandmother. Mm. And then they do the calculation. Okay, 2070, that person is 90 in the year 2160. So then I say, like, okay, this is your intimate time. This is the time that belongs to you. You could actually just plan an event now in the year 2019 that will be played out in the year 2160, the music to be listened to, the the food to be eaten. And you can plan this event with this person for 20 years (laughs) to make sure it will be executed in the year 2160. And then when we have ranted a bit about this and imagined pancake sci-fi, <laughs> just like, you know, strip out the tech because tech is secondary. Uh, humans are like primary. primary. Then I ask them, okay, what do you think now about 2070? What do you think about this report from about 2100? Do you feel it's beyond your imagination or is it only halfway? halfway in your continuity. So the time that belongs to you is the time of somebody that you know and love and creates you. 
versus the time of somebody that you will know and love and you will create. So in my my case, it would be my grandmother's, grandfather's 1920 to about 2130, mm. when some of my favorite closest people are still out there. And I think that we have, we've been in this world with tornado of technology and progress and apps and communication and noise and stuff. And we've seen all these amazing inventions during the 20th century that we have become kind of reckless against the future. That is, we just think that things will fix themselves, which is kind of the theme of <laughs> that casket of time. Mm -hmm. That is the world where everybody's waiting for somebody else to fix things mm. instead of taking responsibility. But you also have a lot of optimism that we can reverse the trend towards the sort of environmental collapse yeah, based on the fact that we're so good at progress. Yeah, so actually I've also been experimenting with uh, just looking at the 20th century because what we are faced with in the next 30 years is, 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 a, is a crazy task. Scientists have kind of laid out a possible apocalypse, which is, of course, terrible, interesting also. Uh, Describe that apocalypse from what touched you about that report. Well, basically, the, the trend of uh, business as usual, reaching three degrees, four degrees of earth temperatures of uh, storms and droughts and uh, mass migration and uh, wars, all, all these, uh, they've kind of just laid this in front of us. And this will happen, they say, as a consequence of uh, all these chains of water, all the droughts, all the tornadoes, all the floods. So it's very biblical, actually. It's a, it's a very kind of a grave situation that we're faced with. And according to science, we have to reduce emissions to zero before 2050. And from there, we have to start sucking out CO2 from the atmosphere. So when I talk to students, because I write children's books, but I also talk to elders, like universities and things, and the, it's really difficult to find a narrative that is not just shaming them or, or shaming my generation or the older for ruining everything and say, I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> it's a Deal mess it. yeah. and, and you have to stop doing everything. And it's not very motivating to be told when you're 19 or 20 that you have to stop doing everything. Uh, while actually, if we look at the task from 2020 to 2050, the task of changing everything, uh, the whole source of energy that humans have built everything from is is just unheard of it's it's just it's 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 almost greater than sci-fi to grasp it so when i talk to these kids i tell them that well when i finished high school i didn't really have a purpose that is you got, you know and we could see the megatrends of that time uh, it could be uh, like Fight Club or something, you know. Yeah, just, we're talking uh, like Nirvana. Yeah, <laughs> we're talking Pearl like, Jam. Like nineties, it's like okay, you get a get an office job somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Selling something, the melancholy of that. Pre-internet. But, 
but actually, if you fa- look at what's and and you would ask why should I become an engineer, and he, then they would say, okay, you could just make something and sell something and become rich, which is fine in a way, but but there's not like a fundamental kind of cause purpose. in that purpose in that. So, in fact, at that time, we were lamenting how our parents' generation had a cause. They had Vietnam. We were almost jealous. Exactly at the time. Uh, exactly, we were kind of jealous at. Uh, grandparents that oh they built this city you know they 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 created the sports club they they had to invent almost everything that the 90s was a huge malaise in a lot of ways yeah so so the thing that we are faced with now is a is a purpose and we've of course we've heard the save the world mantras so many times but it has been more in a vague way but but now kind of it's the scientific proof that lays in front of us. So I've been going through like what has been done in 30 years. Like if you look at the history of flight from uh, flying 30 meters, I'm not sure what it is in feet, <laughs> 30 meters in uh, in 1903 until they went 32 kilometers in 1905, how they scaled it up until they had the Red Baron 15 years after that, you know, air raids over uh, flying circles over Germany until Lindbergh 27 crossed the Atlantic on on their time of of grandeur like not not barely crossing the Atlantic but Paris New York you know like uh, in a grand way mm. that was 27 until uh, i think 32 was the first complaint over service on an airplane <laughs> crossing the Atlantic so there you could see from from 30 meters or 60 feet in in uh, 1902 until 30 years after that where they were actually having a scaled up passenger jet crossing the Atlantic that was done in those times of of scarce resources no computing power nothing actually yeah then if you look at the history of uh, nuclear energy from the uh, theory of the neutron 34, until they actually split an atom with that neutron, with neutrons in 34, until uh, they have the Manhattan Project in in 42, until three years after that, they have a full-scale bomb, which is, of course, a negative story maybe to tell, but it's a story about what humans can do in urgency. And now we have an urgency that has not been seen on a scale ever before and it's a really interesting race actually because kind of the race for uh, progress has kind of been in a competition mode of maybe competing against another country or winning the race of lifestyle or 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 prosperity as a species we haven't had a common goal yet no but this time we have a race where either everyone wins or everyone loses so the faster the U.S. scales up solar technology uh, into having that, you know, Nevada, Arizona, all these areas fully solar in 20 years, the sooner we will see the progress of people that are now in, in the, the billion that still are cooking with wood fire in, uh, in, in poor conditions, we will see how they will take the same step as we've seen in a cell phone where they skipped the landline and went directly to the mobile phone. They just skipped 
because now we're visioning, oh no, we have a billion people and they will have to rise from poverty with uh, coal and and uh, oil and gas and all that. But if we imagine a future where we actually go so aggressively into the clean energy that in 10 years it will be so scaled up that we will see the poorest part of the world having access to cooking and, and light on a, on the fragment of the cost of what it costs to create a new coal-fired infrastructure. Mm. So we can actually see a, a big utopia versus dystopia. I think uh, the United States would need about, uh, well, 10,000 square kilometers of, uh, of solar panels in current technology. But then, of course, you don't need solar for the whole U.S. You also have wind, and then you have waves, and then you have all sorts of thermal energy and solutions that we have to find. And we have to go through this really interesting kind of path of being scared to death, <laughs> that is, being so so afraid that uh, we know that we have to release something, that we mm. have to let go of something, because otherwise we won't let go of it. So we both have to believe that this is happening and understand what is happening, understand the consequences to let go of these things. And actually, I think it's also in the framing of the metaphor, because when you look at the graph from the IPCC, when they show us how we have to go down to zero, you look at the graph and it feels like we have to stop existing. It feels like failure. Yeah. <laughs> no, it feels like we have to like uh, we have to minimize ourselves <laughs> into into nothing in the year 2050. While actually there is another graph that is running kind of against that one, which is just the growth, the escalation, and the scaling up of other technology. And in that is so much innovation that I think that uh, there's so much activity and there's so much energy in having a cause that you can almost feel this enthusiasm of when we finally let go and we start to scale this up, we will live really interesting times. Yeah. Like incredibly positive, interesting times where you can also visualize places that are becoming too hot. Uh, that is when we will see the disadvantages being turned into advantages. If you look at Iceland, where I'm from, uh, we were exporting people in the uh, late 1800s. We lost about 20% of the population. People moved to Canada and the US. That was because Iceland was hardly able to bear 70,000 people. And we just had to export the rest. We would starve, we would freeze, we would, uh, the volcanic eruptions, there was everything going against us. But in the 20th century, we turned all our disadvantages into advantages. So now Iceland actually produces clean energy that is, uh, we only use 10% of it ourselves. It's actually become a problem. <laughs> that is, we're, we're in the problem that the world will see in 2060 when the, when the clean energy lobby <laughs> has, has not found its, which is another discussion, of course, how, how we never find a, in, a finite solution. We just uh, create another problem. But uh, 
before we create that problem, we have it will be a solution. How did you? Well, you're you're you've been very active in the fight against the destruction of the Icelandic islands. Yeah, yeah, that's actually fight against clean energy. Yeah. <laughs> and it, well, ironically, and aluminum and all these things that started. I want to hear about the genesis of that. How did a children's book author at the time become interested in government and policy? So basically, what happened is that. I'm all in for clean energy and uh, and Iceland's energy kind of infrastructure is amazing. You know, we live in a cold, crummy place with uh, awful weather and and we can go 19 s- hours of darkness. Well, well, the darkness, here. well, that's just just kind of a peak darkness in 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 January, December, but uh, but that is actually the most beautiful light of the year. So those 4 hours that we have are actually worth Ten hours. <laughs> four hours of magic hour. <laughs> it's, it's four, four magic hours. It's it's like yeah, the magic hour, the the dream hour of a photographer, mm. is is just going on for four hours. So, I used to travel the Highlands when I was a child. Mm. Uh, my parents, my grandparents, are uh, kind of pioneers in uh, Highland travel in Iceland. They were uh, went on a honeymoon in 1956 on Europe's biggest glacier for four weeks. And uh, they got stuck in that blizzard in a tent for four days. And I asked them, weren't you cold? And they were like, cold. We were just married. <laughs> and I was 11 when I asked them. I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> so so, so the Highlands have had like a... And they took us into the Highlands and these crazy, rugged, wild, volcanic, uh, steamy, dangerous places you know raging rivers that we would cross in our jeep just encountering this vaste infinite black bleak <laughs> actually as a child it you had a kind of twisted feelings because it it was kind of more fun to be with your ki- friends playing soccer and but this was there there was something higher there so then when I was like 20-something, uh, so during my chil- childhood, there was no nothing happening in terms of energy in Iceland. But in the 90s or in early 2000s, suddenly the energy markets of the world with the rise of China, and suddenly there was a demand for power. And suddenly the most beautiful places in Iceland, uh, places that should be on the UNESCO World Her- Heritage List, the greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese in the world, uh, just under a beautiful glacier in the central highlands like like the sa- the sacred centerpiece of icelandic nature was going to be flooded to make aluminum so it wasn't like we were needing to fulfill our primal needs this was like a secondary thing this was after we had harnessed three times more electricity than the nation needed we were still going into the the sacred heart. And I felt something was deeply wrong, but of course I didn't understand megawatts, terawatts. I didn't have uh, a a degree in those fields, really. I was not an economist. I I studied Icelandic literature, poetry, and, uh, and I was going to become a children's book writer. But this, I felt there was something terribly wrong. And I just got this super attention towards the cause and I wanted to understand the language that was being spoken to me 
What does it mean when somebody says 30 terawatt hours of energy creating economic growth? All these words. Because uh, if I had been in a TV interview and somebody said 30 terawatt hours uh, growth and I would say, oh, the geese are so lovely and beautiful. You know, everybody would see I'm the cute guy, you know, but I'm not the guy that should be running the economy. So I just went through the reports, uh, dove in, and I just tried to understand it all. And what does it mean when the government said they could harness 30 terawatt hours of energy in Iceland and sell that to Alcoa and Rio Tinto and all these huge companies? And when I calculated that and applied to the rivers in Iceland, uh, they were promising they could not only harness every river in Iceland and every waterfall, and flood almost every valley where there is a, a river or waterfall, they were promising that we could harness a little bit more <laughs> than all that. And I was like, okay, I've wor- I worked for the electrical company as a, as a teenager doing so- a summer job. So I kind of respected the technology, the, the craftsmanship, but I was like, how can you be born in such a beautiful island, uh, go through an education and come out with the idea that you wanted to apply your knowledge to every single river on the island and create just something from it. It didn't matter what it was. It just could be aluminum. It, they were just, it just had to be any energy-intensive in industry because aluminum uses energy like one million people. And Icelanders, the 300,000, we would never need to harness all Iceland. So and they'd been thrown out of every other country before they got to Iceland. Well, they were being squeezed out because, of course, an aluminum factory is a huge pressure on a grid anywhere. Yeah. So, so then we found out in the late last years that uh, we're still debating areas that the energy authorities want to harness. And now about uh, 150 megawatts, which is enough for us, the city of Reykjavik is going into Bitcoin. You know, and Bitcoin is like. <laughs> Okay, I, I I I respect somebody's search for an alternative alternative currency, you know, trying out blockchains, all this stuff. But how can you be creating a new currency in the beginning or the in the twenty first century that is energy intensive? You know, how could you do that? Did you not read? anything about what's happening to the planet. How could you come up with a currency that now uses what I told you would trash Iceland completely, the 30 terawatt hours? Only Bitcoin in the world could trash Iceland three times over. And we just saw the the black hole recently uh, that was calculated uh, with immense computing power. Bitcoin is using thousand times more than the scientific achievement of, of photographing a black hole, you know, and it's just something that it's a speculation and it's not sustainable. Hmm. So what I went into was, this was a long loop. Um, what I went into was I had an idea for a children's book, but I thought if I could save this area of pink footed geese uh, for future generations, then I would have created something or I ask myself, why am I creating something in a nation that is ready to sacrifice things that are a million times more important than anything I could create? 
so I just thought everything that I could create was worthless if this was being destroyed. So it, you could call it a writer's block in a way that, that I just felt I had to dive into that game. So that became a 10-year-old, a 10-year project of going deep and hard against the energy industry in Iceland. And it was astonishing how a layman, a, a children's book author, could actually find faults in the energy policy obvious faults and and actually ask serious questions to people with phds and 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 decades of experience in the field and that you were actually right and 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 that was both making me all, both believe in democracy that is that uh, that even the experts the, you, the as a as a citizen you can actually dive into any field and you can have something to say because sometimes the fields become, they're just all locked in, what, what do you call the, the effect, the, uh, the room theory, the, uh, mm-hmm. everybody has the same idea in the room theory. <laughs> yeah. And then what did you experience when the crisis happened? Something shifted to your favor. Yeah, so when the crisis happened, uh, of course, all finance dried up. So huge plans of building, I think, two smelters which would have drained and uh, destroyed really beautiful areas in Iceland. Those plans went on hold and we got some uh, time to uh, kind of make a counter narrative, which is a dream of creating a national park because now we can create uh, a 40,000 square kilometer, which is 40% of Iceland, Mm. which is the undisturbed area in the central highlands. And we could make one of the greatest national parks in the world while still being per capita the far biggest energy producer in the world. And we could prove that you can create an industry or an expertise, but you don't have to apply it to everything, (laughs) that you can let something stay. Because that's actually what the world has to do and what basically we're faced with. One of my favorite quotes of Tao is... uh, it's about the emptiness, the the, the worthless, the uh, the useless, the void. That is, the wheel works because of of the empty space that enables the wheel to spin. So so the emptiness is actually practical, and it's actually it's actually it has use. And beauty is one of the biggest commodities of Iceland in many ways. Yes, of course. Like the tourist industry is uh, is creating lots of value, and and of course, in as a source of identity, as a source of health, as a source of humanity, because I want to move beyond also always trying to find a label for nature in terms of some kind of marketing value or something that we have to look at something. And just respect, okay, that is there, that is nature, that is beauty. And it's not my role to define it or or go into it, kind of live side by side to it. Somehow we don't question nature. We don't wonder why is a leaf designed that way. There's, no, just, there's something bigger. I'm also writing a book now on time and water. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually... 
So we had this huge dam in eastern Iceland, and that dam was built in 2002, so they drowned like uh, a place the size of Manhattan, which was so beautiful, under 200 meters of, of, of muddy water. And uh, I was reading a travel log of a person that was there in the in 1939, and there he was just he was just exploding <laughs> uh, against the beauty of the area, and and the text he writes is in Icelandic and it's almost untranslatable. It's like his soul resonates with the space dimension of God or something. It, it's just it just it just goes into this Highland mania or something, and. While my generation is all raised with, with looking practically at at the, uh, the creation and uh, never going into the divine or something, always looking at it as market value as as something, and never really questioning or wondering. Well, we try to understand it scientifically, but also just like uh, looking at the leaf and just just not learning anything, just just looking at it and and respecting the beauty of it, which is, I think, something that might lack in our education or upbringing or general experience. For sure. Somehow our generation came through this period where a beauty was kind of a bad word. Yeah, and it was not, you couldn't measure it, you couldn't Teachers couldn't, couldn't control couldn't, it. They, you couldn't get grades. <laughs> yeah. For, for, you can't quantify. For, no. Whatever you couldn't quantify during this period is was it was also about the rise of technology in many ways and the fall of religion. Yes. Yes. In in a way, yes. And uh, the the rise of like rationality and also uh the economication of the language. Mm-hmm. Where, like, we've tried, like, in the nature realm, we've tried to say, well, the service of nature. So nature is providing us with, um, you know, $10 billion, you know, the the wetlands or something. So we're trying to put that into some kind of Wall Street language. And that was what happened in Iceland as well. We were told, you have to uh, calculate the worth. And, and, And some people said, we can make a query, like, how much would you want to pay to keep the highlands and, and then they would call 1000 people and and people would say well two dollars or twelve dollars or something and and then they would have something they called the price of the area and, and i thought we were kind of desperate we wanted to find something but we were like is this appropriate to take something infinite huge mystical mythological older than us uh, beyond us and and make a phone survey and and find out a price for it a price tag and if alcoa wanted to bid a higher price then, then we'll just raise it to the ground you know tell me about the lights off stars on project yes yeah, so the lights off stars on project was a kind of a very old dream i i remember one because i was skiing as a child i was skiing a lot hmm. And uh, and once we had a blackout in the skiing area, so we were of course it's, it's dark in the winter, so we had a blackout, and I was laying on the back, on my back under a an immense sky. Uh, the city also went off, so we were sitting there, a few friends in the snow, and we had never seen a sky like this. It was like it was crazy, and then came these northern lights, 
and just and it it was like we kind of went out of our bodies it was it was like one of the deepest moments of my childhood of just lying there with my my skiing friends and just looking into the stars and we had never done that and i started thinking okay humans have been on this planet you know since who knows when Hundreds of thousands Between of years. Between 10 and 100,000, we don't really know. <laughs> 6,000 years. <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and we're raising the first generation of humans that doesn't have access to this. So I was just thinking, all the poetry, all the music, all the science, navigation, all the fundaments of everything that we are comes from this. As a child or something looking into this and asking, what is this? This is so beyond us. What's there? And and just all everything that has come out of that, all the gods, all the science, all the art. So it's almost like the fundamental source of our... our, of our imagination. Uh, imagination and just basically our, our, our system. And And I was thinking, isn't this an experiment? Raising a whole generation of children with illuminated cities without any access to a deep black sky, without any connection to it in terms of navigation, traveling by night, or just uh, lying with your father and he tells you the story of his grandfather (laughs) connected to some polar star or something. And then I was trying to take my kids out to experience this, but it was always like, you know, taking your kids in a car in in January into into the snow it's it's just dangerous it's uh, and i thought why don't we just turn off the city isn't it a fundamental right of a child to have access to a dark sky so um, i convinced the the mayor of Reykjavik to turn off all the city lights <laughs> and uh, astronomer astrologist which one is a scientist astronomer astronomer spoke about the stars. Astrologist. Astrologist. Tell you what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Astronomer. I mix them up all the time. (laughs) I'm not sure if they know themselves which one is which. Are you into astrology? Not not so much. Okay. I I like it as a curiosity. But uh, so the astronomer was talking about the stars on national public radio. And the idea was we should have an alert system that when we're expecting like a meteorite thing or a eclipse of the moon or, a, or just something really special in the sky, then it's it's a fundamental right to have access to it. And just like we have a, a Super Bowl or something where everybody's expected to watch, then this would be kind of on the calendar as something that uh, belongs to us as a, as a humanity. So they turned off the city lights for half an hour. And of course, for me, it was a bit stressful because I knew that everything that would happen in the city <laughs> for half an hour was my fault. <laughs> so, so whoever falls, whoever, you know, whoever breaks in somewhere, whatever happens, it will be my fault. So I, I didn't really experience uh, this uh, in the serenity of, of what I had done as a child in the mountains. But it was really interesting because when the lights went off, the sound of the city went down. It was almost like you could hear the lights go off mm-hmm. because people started whispering. 
because there was some kind of uh, sacredness about not disturbing the sky. <laughs> so so the lights went off and the sound went down. And uh, and people were suddenly at 10 o'clock in the evening walking around their neighborhood in complete darkness, meeting neighbors and feeling really safe. And because, of course, you're safe when everybody's out. So it was an experiment. It started as a small poem. It was just called Lights Out, Stars On. It's almost like these Yoko Ono descriptions. You could call it a visual art. So it's just basically a description. And ingredients, uh, all the lights are turned off for half an hour between uh, 10 and 10.30. Will you be doing it annually? Well, it has been done partially. But as a big event... Uh, it has not been done annually. It actually should be done annually, but it also has to depend on weather. One of my kind of arguments was also because they said, but it's dangerous. And I said, but one day we could have a volcanic eruption. We could have an earthquake. We're, we live in, in a very active country. People have to know how it is to go out of their house at 10 in the night. 15, 20 years ago, there was a blackout in New York. Yeah. A kind of famous blackout. And which we later learned was a sort of corporate trick, but oh, really, yeah. I mean, this was the energy, you oh, know, yeah, wars. Um, someone shut it off, but but when New York had its blackout, everyone was freaked out that there were going to be raids yeah. and crime. Yeah. It was a party. Yeah, everyone had a great time. Yeah, Times Square was filled with people. Yeah. Everyone was taking care of each other. Yeah. It was a time. All the bars opened up. For free alcohol, it was a it was a great night. I think also because New Yorkers were felt like it was their gift after nine eleven, like oh, they had yeah. this yeah. sort of tragedy free yeah. excuse. But human beings have a potential to um, galvanize and join together more than hurt each other at times, and we see it in moments like that. I think, like if you read, uh, like. Uh Rebecca Solnit, like, uh, what was it, Hope in the Dark, or, that actually difficult things are much more likely to bring out the best in people. Surprisingly, beautiful things actually tend to happen in those situations. And I'm not sure where this zombie apocalypse fear comes from, of everybody just... <laughs> losing sense of humanity and starting killing each other. Of course, those things have happened in history, and, and it's a bit disappointing when you look at the history of, of ships, for example, that sink, that the survivors are normally 30-year-old guys. <laughs> those are the people <laughs> that survive. So, so it's not like most survivors are women and children, and then... Some altruism lets them. Yeah, let's skip this. Human it's, survival is something different, though. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's, I wanted to get the full story of, of bonus because I just love that project. So I wanted to go a bit deeper into it. You mentioned it earlier, but yes. you're 22, you're 23. You don't know what you're doing. You hadn't published yet. How did you even? How did you see poetry as relevant? Why did you want to become a poet? So I, I'm, I'm kind of a jock. You could say I was a young, beautiful. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, You're a good-looking guy. <laughs> no, I was I was a sporty 
kid yeah, and I was good at math and, and all that stuff. But maybe my mind was sometimes elsewhere and none of my friends had any artistic ambitions or anything. So it was just lis- listening to Duran Duran and, and, uh, playing soccer and watching football and, but, uh, friend of my father started giving me lots of poetry books and I actually didn't know where they came from but for some strange reason when I was 15 I was reading kind of the cutting edge of what was happening in poetry in Iceland without actually knowing that I was doing that and I was also deep into folklore and but I didn't really believe that uh, yeah folklore and just ideas in general so I thought I might want to go into some idea thing it could be architecture maybe uh, but I was good at math so of course you have to use your talent and uh, so it would be normal to go to engineering or or become a doctor like my whole family my my father's a doctor my sister my mother's a nurse my wife is a nurse my grandfather's a doctor grandfather's a doctor yeah so I was 22 and I was wondering like I had published one small book of poetry myself Mm self-published I wanted to be a writer but I was wondering like um what do you write about? Why do you write? What uh, what subject do you choose? And uh, I was roaming around my uh, local strip mall. So I was not surrounded by golden plovers and uh, waves and puffins and uh, and jumping whales like people yeah, imagine. This is sprawl. It was just I was just in in suburbia, which is just like any suburbia in any any suburban place, and I had this. Uh, ugliest place in Iceland close to me. And I was thinking about beauty. That is, who defines beauty? And and how we can actually sometimes turn something really ugly into beauty by just changing our perspective. Because lava in Iceland, you know, every foreigner that comes to Iceland is like, wow, look at this lava. Icelanders saw lava as a nuisance. Lava was was a infertile land it, it it did not provide anything it broke the bones of your animals uh, it was in, from an eruption that killed maybe your ancestors so lava was not something we loved and we did not see lava as nature so in the in the 1900s uh, in the beginning of the 20th century they wanted to plant forests in the lava fields and and make nature out of it so then we had a painter the national painter of Iceland, his name is Kjarval. Instead of looking above the lava at the sky behind, he looked directly at the lava and took it into the canvas, maybe through six times six feet or something, like huge canvas of, of lava. And nobody had done that before. And suddenly our perspective started to change and lava came into our identity and we came to peace with lava and we started to protect even lava fields mm. from destruction. So I was thinking, what if I take those eyes and go into the ugliest place of Iceland, the, the strip mall, the parking lots, and, and just try to see something? And then I found that it actually had a deeper meaning. So I went into the ugliest place in the ugliest place, which was the, uh, or the tackiest place in the ugliest place, which was the bonus supermarket. And everything in bonus has a bonus logo on it. So it's bonus bread there's this pink pig bonus bread bonus juice bonus cola and i was wondering how would the ugliest book of poetry look like and in that line so it would be bonus poetry sold like in bulks 
And there was something too tempting about this cover. So as people know that know a poet, normally poets, they make the cover first and then they start making poems that looked like the cover. So I saw that Bonus was actually divided exactly like the Divine Comedy by Dante. So you start in Paradiso, the fruit division, then you go to Inferno, the meat products, and then you end in the Purgatory, the cleaning products. And then I saw it, of course, it had a deeper meaning because we don't have a town square. We don't have like a, a square in, in Italy where everybody meets and say, ciao, bella, you know, you know, we just go to Bonus. And that's our own common experience. The piazza called Bonus. <laughs> the piazza. <laughs> the piazza is Bonus. So, of course... If if this is where we are, then that is what we are. And what we are is a place that needs poetry and art. But this place was completely void of art and poetry. So suddenly, I just had a full volume of bonus poems, of, of roaming the aisles, looking for mythology and uh, and uh, interactions. And, uh, and then suddenly I had a book. So I thought, okay, I just have to take this all away. And I have to have it published in the same way as the juice producer. And the uh, I have to become a subcontractor to bonus as as all of these providers of goods. So I took the book to the owner of bonus or the CEO and I showed him the book and he really liked the cover. And uh, he had never made poetry before. So uh, he printed out uh, an agreement. So I, I signed a contract where I said, if the consumer is harmed by the product, then the producer, me, is liable to this in that law, according to this clause. So it was a very responsible book deal that I made. And uh, and it actually became a bestseller. So Bonus published the book of poetry that was essentially not in a way making fun of them, but, but being critical of them. Yes. It a was. subversive consumer book of poetry. Yeah, you know, it was. I was kind of making fun of them, but of course... You can't take away consumerism from yourself. You can't pretend to be a poet and be clean because as soon as you make a book, you have a product and the product is always a product. And I was thinking of this higher moral stand that I was supposed to have as a poet, always talking about sellouts. But then like, you know, Beckham was a sellout, like sold himself to Pepsi and Britney Spears as a sellout. And, you know, everybody's a sellout for selling themselves to something. But I thought... Why can't I be a sellout as a poet? <laughs> it would be an interesting experience. And But then I also thought in a deeper level, is the bread producer a sellout? Is the guy that makes the toilet paper a sellout? Am I on a higher level than they are? Is the supermarket too low for me? You know, am, am, I, am I above them? Or am I just the same as them? So it, it had multi, multiple dimensions, actually. In One of the most interesting questions you raise is, is art as important as food? That was actually the, the cause of it. The cause was that if we live in a world devoid of art, then we are devoid of something fundamental in our lives. So actually, if it, the reason why people felt miserable in bonus was because it was devoid of all other dimensions that everything that humans try to interact with is always put into a perspective. Our houses, everything is put into a perspective, but this was dominated by this one perspective that was dom dominated by the marketing forces, so the 
the logos, the everything. But there was no like human thread through this. But it started doing really well. Yeah, it sold uh, thousands of pounds of poetry. I think uh, 2,000 pounds of poems. And uh, it was a bestseller. And, uh, but that was also an ex- And you measured it in the weight of the book? Yeah, that's how you measure <laughs> success in supermarket poetry. And, uh, and, and then, of course, it became a bestseller. And it was also an interesting experience because it became like viral. And, and my short story collection came out the same day. And uh, nobody noticed my short story collection because everybody went to bonus. And in a strange way, I was giving bonus lots of really good PR, <laughs> which was not my intention at first. So, so I was called for a TV interview. And as everyone knows, a poet wants to be on TV. But then the producer came in really hyped. He had made this pre-made slot. And and he was like, this was great. We were in bonus all day. We've never talked about poetry before, but now we're we're going to make a 15 minutes about your, your book. So we were in bonus for 14 minutes. And then you're on air for one minute. And you, you only have time to say one snappy joke. And you don't have time to talk about your short story collection. Then he told the woman next to me, I'm really sorry, but uh, we don't have time to talk to you. uh, So you can go home. Uh, But we'll mention your cause in the end of the program. And she was from the Red Cross raising awareness of uh, of the refugee crisis in Rwanda. And I felt this really strange kind of moment of, making fun of something or kind of criticizing by participating but still getting giving it lots of PR not talking about what I had been working on kind of the most which was my short stories and then of course showing us throwing a shadow on something far greater than than all this stuff which was uh, the refugee crisis and it was a good symbolism symbol of what uh, Postman was talking about in amusing ourselves to death that is where uh, important things just don't get attention. They're not framed into a, into understanding. And I was wondering then, this was my second book, and I was thinking like, why do I write? You know, Why do I do anything? Do I have a purpose? Is there anything that I have to say? I had lots of ideas, but none of them were really worth it. So out of that came The Blue Planet after I had been lost in the archives of the Manuscript Institute for one year, where I was listening to old women reciting rhymes, and I was working also putting on display the old Edda, which is the original manuscript of the the Nordic mythology. So there I had like this encounter to deep time, which was I could read from a page of skin on a book, something that somebody was thinking of 800 years ago, remembering something even older than that. And then I was listening to women that were reciting rhymes that they learned from their grandmothers, that they learned from their grandmothers, that they learned from their grandmothers. And that's like they could trace a poem in their family memory down to 1700-something. And I thought this was almost like putting a time machine on my ears. And this woman had maybe never performed for anybody but her own children. 
And in mythology, in the old book, there you could have the sun and the moon and the stars and all those things having a role in a story. So kind of these things, Rwanda, Bonus, uh, mythology, all came together into the Blue Planet. Exactly, where you look forward and you look back. It's like when Notre Dame tragically burned. Yeah, I was the, yeah. The thing that everyone seemed to talk about first was this was built 800 years mm-hmm. ago and it took 200 years to build. Yeah. And we don't think no. in terms of that span of time at all in our society because of we're living in a bonus society. And that's exactly what what we have to start thinking is that I was amazed. I think it was even that cathedral. They had like plans of the next wing they would start 150 years from <laughs> from you know like from 1400 they had like a yeah so in 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 1550 we're going to start the west wing which is amazing like generational thinking it'll be interesting to see how quickly they renovate it yeah i think what you can actually look at positively is that you feel like it was a tragedy but it can be fixed. Uh, well, you have this confidence that that uh, we will be able to rebuild it, or or they, or we, or whoever. I want I want to talk a bit about the Cask of Time, your newest book. That's where I want to finish. But before that, I want to speak about what you're working on right now with Time and Water. You've had a couple of interesting meetings. I don't know if you can talk about it with the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I I met the Dalai Lama twice. First in Iceland. And uh, and then uh, after our meeting, uh, he asked me if I've been to India, and I said no. And he said, if you come to India, let me know. We can maybe talk some more, which was very chummy of him. But he is apparently... Uh, I'll text you. I'm in the <laughs> he, Apparently, he doesn't say things like that to be polite. So when he says that, it's actually... Uh, he means it. He normally says what he means. So his uh, assistants told us that, or told me that uh, this meant I could apply for another interview if I was in India. So I applied for another interview and went to Dharamsala. And then we spoke again for an hour. It was filmed, but just before the last question, the camera broke. So he asked, uh, I have to go to another meeting, but if, you have time to wait for three hours, I can come back. So then we took like another one hour interview. So we got like, spoke like three hours. That was also an encounter with time because he's been reincarnated 14 times. And his lineage, you know, goes down to the 15th century. And I was wondering, what can you ask a person that has been reincarnated 14 times and it has to be a really wise question, you know, not not just uh, how's your fifth life compared to your tenth life, it, and uh, and also if you just warp his life, his his fourteen lives into the future, that is that is so much sci-fi <laughs> of of thinking all that time into the future, and if you just take into what has happened during his own life now, so he has also kind of lived ten lives within this one life, in, in chains of the planet, in Asia and China. So I was looking for a wise question. My mind went back to the archives in the Arne Magnusson Institute in Iceland. And there, 
they have the origin story of the world, uh, according to Nordic mythology, and it's the most most bizarre myth that has been preserved. The belief that the world started with a frozen cow. So it sounds like a misunderstanding, like a whispering game that went wrong. So Nordic mythology is what Marvel Comics is using for Thor, Ragnarok, and uh, you know all these uh, Valhalla and uh, Loki and and all these beings that are now expanded into uh, mega Hollywood blockbusters. But all this is coming from this one manuscript that I was holding in Iceland. So the world, I don't think Marvel Comics can make a, anything about the frozen cow in the beginning of time. So so I was thinking about this. A frozen cow, it sounds like a misunderstanding. And the name of the cow is the Humla of Prosperity. And it doesn't make any more sense. So from the Humla of Prosperity come the four rivers that nourish the world. Then, of course, India has this, and Asia has this sacred cow. And they have also the world cow, which is Kamadenu, which is kind of the symbol of earth. And the foundation of that cow, the feet of that cow, is are symbolized as the Himalayas, which is interesting. How the, So the earth is standing on the Himalayas, or the the source of prosperity. And then I went, went looking into the Himalayas, and of course they have a district in Nepal called Humla. And there you'll have the great Himalayan trail leading you to Kailas, which is the most sacred mountain in the world, the throne of Shiva and the center of the universe, according to Hindus. And from that mountain come the four sacred rivers of Asia, uh, the Indus, the Ganga, the Brahmaputra, the Sutlej, basically providing life with all these glacial, and of course the source of these rivers are glaciers. Uh, the source of the Ganga, which is the most sacred place in India, is called Gomuk, and Go is cow, and Muk is mouth. It's, it's Indo-European language. Uh, and Gomuk means the mouth of the cow. So a glacier, of course, as a source of life, it makes perfect sense as a metaphor. And it was like beautiful, like, of course, something that we've taken for granted, just, you know, these white mountains, they are a perfect system. They accumulate water when you don't need it, when there's too much, the monsoons, and uh, and then when it's dry, you they release this water when you need it the most. And this system is also even better than water because it, they're scraping the mountains and the water is white like milk because it's full of silt. For your crop, it's like a fertilizer. So suddenly, of course, the Himalayas, they're the holy cow, and, and one billion people are living on these milky white rivers coming from the Himalayas. And suddenly, like a bizarre myth of Nordic mythology, is like a real place, a metaphor for a real place on our planet. And in the interview, he was worried about the future of these glaciers. Because... Uh, just like the glaciers in Iceland are receding, these are also receding. But it's kind of a evil way of receding. That is, they release more water while they're receding. That is, they create false prosperity before they they last back. So you're first. So people are not adapting to less water slowly. They're adapting to abundance while. Just like taking from a bank account, you're, you're taking water that uh, should be 20 years worth of reserves 
and spending that and then it will recede and you will hit the wall. So this is what people are worried about in the worst scenarios of climate change is what happens if and when or how these rivers dry up. And actually in uh, in Hinduism there's a there's a story that the earth would be in trouble it would take on the form of a cow and uh, ask for mercy and i was like being more rational and myst- and and in in thinking i was like okay now the cow <laughs> came to me <laughs> the cow spoke to me what do i do because i i had a idea for a story when i was younger I was imagining the world religions and what would happen if the wrong god spoke to you you know how how does the how do the gods divide the world you know who knows who was born in the right country and uh, and you know if if some elephant god suddenly came to you and asked you to do something and you had no idea what he stands for some kind of a life of brian story but now that life of brian story happened to me so the the cow spoke to me and I have to write a book <laughs> and tell the world that the big cow is in danger and uh, we have to uh, take action. So before we go, I want to speak about The Casket of Time, which yeah. which I'm currently reading. The origins of this book started when? What sort of inspired this story? So what inspired this story is actually almost everything during the last 20 years. I, I take books very seriously. I think it's really difficult to write. I don't think it's easy to write. I always envy these authors that blurp out a book every year. It takes three months or something, and and then they're ready for the next book. They have to settle really hard because I feel it's so difficult to write. I have to feel like it's the most important thing in the world to do. And it can take me months and years just to find the tone and 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 get it all together and i tend to put so many concepts into the story and and they have to work smoothly and just to make the story look like it was easy to write is really <laughs> our friend bjarke says that he felt like he's read the book because of the number of times he's walked on hikes with you listening to ideas of the book for so many yeah years. yeah I, I tend to also tell the stories before i have written them Fantastic. So, so the casket of time is about a mad king that has conquered the world, and he feels like it's really a shame that he has accomplished all this, but it doesn't get more time than other people. I just think it's deeply unfair. And this beautiful princess, she will just grow old and die, like she wasn't more valuable and sacred than all these normal peasants all around. So he demands a solution, but of course nobody can help him until some dwarves come and they have something that looks like a glass casket, but it's not made of glass. It's woven with spider silk and it's so densely woven that time cannot penetrate the walls. So when he closes the casket and opens a week later, the princess feels like only one second passed. So uh, he can remove all the unimportant days from her life, all the Mondays. Like we spent one-seventh of our life on Monday which is tragic, actually, you know, when you're 97 and you think, what happened to my life? Oh, yeah, one-seventh was Monday, <laughs> like 15 <laughs> years of Mondays, you know, gone down the drain. And then all the Februarys, all the Novembers, uh, maybe you don't like the president for four years, you know, all these uh, wasted moments. 
So he can give the princess only the time that really matters, only the Instagram moments of life. And this works well to begin with, but slowly she becomes so precious that it takes two years to predict, to prepare the perfect day of her life that runs seamlessly from morning to evening like a, like a dance uh, with butterflies and running giraffes and banquets and dances miniature and rhinos miniature rhinos yeah <laughs> everything that you could act, dream of and and then one day a boy breaks into the castle and is going to steal her necklace and she finds out that she's been 20 years in the casket the king has gone mad the kingdom is crumbling and he's not going to uh, open until everything is perfect again so the second half of the book takes place in our time when something like ikea has made these uh things that you can put together with a hex key and avoid the Mondays and the rainy days and the boring seasons. And in the end, people can actually avoid the problems by just closing themselves up and hoping that things will fix themselves. So, of course, the inspiration is Earth leaving geological speed, entering human speed, which is happening now. On our in our time, you know, the fact that everything is changing in a hundred years is similar to what happens in the kingdom of Pangea, which is the origin story of how Africa and South America originally split up. Which sounds unrealistic if you've learned too much geology, but if you look at what's happening then then it's a origin story of that. We went through the economic crisis where our heroes became scoundrels. We we saw maybe the wars in Iraq or something when you were wondering, oh, I thought I was part of the good guys, but we're actually part of the bad guys, aren't we? And then I was um, looking at the boring times. We were going through incredibly boring times during the crisis, like uh, everything was falling apart. Everything was, everybody thought their future was over. Everything was kind of uh, for nothing. And people were angry for months and years, blaming bankers and all that stuff and protests and all this stuff. And I was thinking, yeah, what if you could just lock yourself away from this, not spend your prime years on a period like this, but you could just lock yourself up and come out fresh and new when everything is is over. So I was drawing in lots of kind of being a parent also. Four hey, children. Four children, yeah. Yeah, it's not uh, a joke. It's professional parenting. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's lack of education. It's, uh, I didn't know how children... Suddenly we just had four children. <laughs> but we spoke for five years if we were ready to have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but the children just, just popped up. So um, being a parent and also this idea of modern parenting... Uh, I was very free as a child. I, my parents didn't know where I was for half the day. I just came home for dinner. I left in the morning and I came home for dinner. And there was there were no worries and we were just playing in some empty buildings or something. And and then this idea of of making the perfect life for your children and and uh, and also this uh, idea that we also see today of taking care that your children are not shocked or uh, or they don't see something that is terrible or uh, or anything serious they don't hear of so something. There was the period when our children were young where where you, you the trend of not saying no. 
Yeah, all sorts and of... And we see how that worked out. Yes, exactly. So all sorts of kind of things that... Uh, and then, of course, the grave situation that we have regarding the planet without pretending that I'm writing cli-fi or something. But but also the uh, which I'm often obsessed with is how difficult it is for us when we get something new to find a balance of, of using something that is maybe very useful, like a car or an airplane. Social media. Social media. But we always kind of <laughs> go off the rails with everything. But the problem is that, okay, it's okay to go off the rails with, you know, well, it's not okay, but, it, you know, you go off the rails with alcohol or or some idea, electricity or whatever. Uh, but uh, now humanity is faced with, with just basically all going off the rails. And how do you grasp something like that? Uh, so I kind of took much of the things that are in the Time and Water project. They're in this story as... The Dalai Lama also, because he was like a child and suddenly created as a suddenly raised to be a holy person and and could not have like a normal childhood playing around. And so I was reading his, I think it was seven years in Tibet, and I was kind of feeling sorry for that lonely child that uh, could not just play around. So the princess is not based on him, but but all these things. So I actually encountered a real timeless prince or princess or or or, or, or human. I'm not using him one on one on one, but uh, but it's like um, the essence is there. The essence is there. Yeah, that's a beautiful book. I I so appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website timesensitive.fm or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Slowdown.tv